So today we're going to do an episode about the scariest U.S.-China news story I've seen in years. Um, reports over the past week that, quote, the U.S. has intelligence that the Chinese government is considering providing Russia with drones and ammunition for use in the war in Ukraine. We're recording this on February 27th. Would China really do it? What does that mean for the world if the U.S. and China end up on opposite sides of a proxy war? Uh, to discuss today, I have on Georgetown's Dennis Wilder, a longtime CIA veteran who served as a director on the China desk under the Bush administration, spent six years under Obama editing the presidential daily brief before concluding his career in government as the CIA's deputy assistant director for East Asia and the Pacific. Dennis, welcome to China. Great to be here. Thank you, Jordan. What is she thinking? So, Jordan, let me uh, start somewhere where people often don't start on this subject. And I think they're overlooking something very major here. We talk, when we talk about China's attitude toward Russia, as if it's a very pragmatic, um, hard-headed decision on the Chinese part to straddle the subject of the Ukraine, to try to have a semi-neutrality on Ukraine while still somewhat supporting the, the Russians. I think that's all true, but I think what is missed is the personal dimension of Xi Jinping and his relationship with Putin. And the reason I think this is important is because Chinese foreign policy today is not made by the foreign ministry. It is made by Xi Jinping. And what Xi Jinping says goes. And if you look at what Xi Jinping has actually said about Putin over recent years, in June of 2019, when he went to Moscow, he called Putin my best friend and colleague. He has repeated that line in every meeting since. Xi Jinping is not a warm, fuzzy guy. He doesn't show emotion. <laughs> um, and he never calls anybody a friend. You, I dare you to find anything anywhere of Xi Jinping calling anybody else in this world, even people within his inner circle, a friend. This is not something he does. And I think what it shows is he has really a personal bond with Putin. He sees himself and Putin in the same place. In other words, they both are under extreme pressure from the United States and the West. They both uh, have a system of government that clearly President Biden and others disdain. And they both feel that if given the chance, the West would take them down. And so these two leaders, I think, are bonded in a way that we have not understood. Uh, and there's good reason why we don't understand it, because the inner circle of uh, President Xi is very small. The other thing I would do, and this is a little bit of psychological analysis, Xi's father who was, as you know, a party revolutionary who fought alongside Mao, went to the Soviet Union to study heavy industry in the 1950s. His father's attitude shaped his attitudes. And I think she has a deep-rooted admiration for Soviet values, history, and culture. And so as we start to discuss this, and I know this is kind of long-winded of me no, to no, start please. here. This but is why this is why we have a I show. I think it's important. Yeah. All right. Well, I I think that when I look at what other scholarship is on this, they try and do it from a very 
international relations point of view. And I think a lot of history is shaped by these personal dimensions. And so when we look at Xi's attitude and his relationship with Putin, they have met 39 times since she came into office. That is far more meetings than when any other world leader. I believe there have been 19 meetings with U.S. leaders in the same time period. Uh, I'll just tell you one anecdote that comes from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, apparently, a report was sent to Xi by Tsinghua University, which is his alma mater and is the MIT of China, that argued that Russia's economy had no future, implying there was little gain for China in a closer relationship, uh, according to people who knew of it. President Xi wrote in the margins of the report, nonsense. And that is the kind of thing that we need to look at. This man feels a very, very bonded to President Putin. And they have reasons to be bonded this way because of their joint feelings about how the world and particularly the West is treating them. So then let's go to the whole question of arms to Putin. Or actually, let's let's stay there, let's okay. stay there for a second. So, All right. okay. you know, it's it's very hard. It's hard for me sitting here, having grown up in the U.S. of A. as like a normal person who doesn't run a country of a billion people to imagine how it would be, how like hanging out with Vladimir Putin would be like the guy who understands me the most and like the person who I can like have a sort of peer to peer discussion with. I mean, maybe it's sort of like, you know, when, when CEOs of companies say like, I have dinners with other CEOs because they're the only ones who like understand the pressures that I'm under and I can't, right. you know, yeah. speak sort of like equally to my subordinates because they're my subordinates and I just des I decide how much I how much I pay them and I can hire and fire them. And like, you know, I mean, Kim Jong Un doesn't seem like the the person you're going to want to <laughs> no. chat with, like Fidel Castro. Right. I mean, like mm, Burmese right. military right. hunter. Right. But on the other, yeah, when, right. when you put your head and like, I feel like Iran is just like such a different universe that, yeah. you know, like she's not really going to be able to vibe that too much with with Khomeini. But like, you know, you know, now that you say it, I mean, you, you kind right. of see it's it's lonely up there up top. And, uh, you know, to have to have one person who's sort of on your wavelength and sees the world in a similar way um, that you've, you know, been actively working together to try to do deals with for, you know, a decade now. Um, the fact that he has a soft spot in his heart for this guy um, makes a lot of sense. Well, I think, I think, you know, you have to, think about this from the point of view that Putin feels and has said that the decline of the Soviet Union was one of the worst things in his life. And Xi Jinping would agree. Uh, the Chinese have studied the decline of the Soviet Union, have been very clear that they're not going to make the kinds of mistakes the Soviet Union made and the leaders did. One of the things that they point to is tearing down of your heroes of the past in communism, that once you start doing that, you actually destroy communism itself. 
Um, so they have actually a lot in common. They can discuss Marxist-Leninism together. Uh, do you think Biden discusses Marxist-Leninism with uh, Xi Jinping? I don't think so. <laughs> um, so uh, there is more bonding there. I also, one other myth I would like to kind of take a shot at is this idea that Xi Jinping now sees Putin as a junior partner in the relationship. I don't think that's true. I think he sees him as an equal. I think he still admires uh, Russia. I think uh, he sees Russia as a country with a huge nuclear force, huge capabilities, uh, having a rough time, no question about it, in the Ukraine, but not necessarily um, somehow seeing that the Russians are lesser to, to China. I think they, it is a true... Uh, relationship of equals at this point. So let's let's take it now towards 2022. Both leaders sort of proclaim their abiding affection toward each other, say that the relationship has no limits. And then it seems like Putin didn't tell Xi he was about to invade a country. That's not what friends do to that's that's not what friends do to each other, Dennis. Right. No, they don't. They don't. And um, I think that probably she uh, would be would have been very disturbed with his friend. I think she would also have been disturbed with his intelligence services because they probably told him, even though the Americans were putting out the information that uh, Putin was deploying a massive force of 130,000 to the borders of Ukraine, I think they thought he was bluffing to some degree, was using military coercion without invasion. They certainly would not have taken on an invasion of that sort, the Chinese. So it was out, out of their realm, I think, of possibility. And I think the intelligence service in China probably misled Xi. I also think, though, the no limits friendship idea is personal to Xi Jinping, because you hear from foreign ministry people in China very uncomfortable with this term and this idea. And again, I think that shows Xi's personal involvement. Now, once the invasion occurred, China had to straddle this issue. Because on the one hand, as we all know, China is very sensitive to the issue of sovereignty and territorial integrity because of the issue of Taiwan and the issue of the Indian border and a lot and issue of South China Sea. There are a lot of areas where China is asserting its territorial integrity. Um, and so in that sense, they've had to be somewhat critical of the Russians, but not too critical. So at the UN, they abstain in many of the UN votes rather than voting with Russia on these issues. Um, but at the same time, they very much are convinced of Putin's position that NATO enlargement, pressures brought by the West, created the conditions where Putin felt he had no choice. And so in that sense, they're very much on the side of the Russians because they feel that the West, as it does with China, finds every way to put pressure on and to limit um, the constrain, rather, uh, China and Russia and North Korea, and Iran, and other countries. Uh, and so for the Chinese, this has been a rough road. Now, 
One of the things the Biden administration felt it had done well during 2022 was keep China out of the conflict. Uh, the administration very early on laid down the marker with China that it shouldn't get involved militarily with lethal aid to uh, Russia. And I think uh, they were very pleased in the White House with how that turned out. It was the China listened largely because China saw the kinds of extreme sanctions that were put on the Russians. China has had so many sanctions put on it and didn't want another set of sanctions and was very worried about that. So China has not violated our sanctions on Russia. Uh, China has bought oil from the Russians, but only within the uh, constraints put out by the United States and the West on Russian oil sales. Uh, and so China, for a long time, was behaving within, shall we say, the bounds that were acceptable to Washington. Sure. And then so, something happened. So, so yeah, <laughs> I mean, in, over the sort of toward the end of, of last year, we had at least one Chinese company get sanctioned for, for supplying um, satellite imagery to um, the Wagner group of all people. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, over the past few, uh, few days, we've had really concerning reports of, of secretary Blinken doing kind of the same thing that he had to do a year ago, presumably back then he hoped he wouldn't have to do it again of telling the Chinese, look, we know you're thinking about this and you really, really shouldn't cross the line that we set. So, um, right. What, what's going on here, Dennis? Yeah. What changed? Why, why now are the administration officials worried again about the Chinese? And I think it's pretty simple. The simple answer is Putin's forces have failed. And the battlefield situation is extremely tenuous for Putin. It is not clear that this new offensive is going to work. And there is a real danger from the Chinese point of view that Putin might be in some way defeated on the battlefield, that he might have to withdraw, but even worse, that if he withdrew and then uh, people within Russia were angry about this, that he could be toppled from government. And of course, nobody knows what kind of Russian government would come after Putin. It's very difficult to predict what the succession would be like. And so they very much want to find a way to keep Putin in power, because as I say, Xi Jinping feels very comfortable with Putin. And um, so they are now looking at, I think, how could they get him the kind of help he needs? Now let's look at a couple of the weapon systems. Just And I am a former military analyst, so I'm a bit wonky about this, but stick with me. So let's, let's talk artillery and artillery shells. Artillery shells uh, are terribly important on this battlefield because it is trench-like warfare right now. And the number of shells each side is using on a daily basis is phenomenal. And the Russians are running out. They have gone to the North Korean for some artillery shells, but China has a massive capability for artillery shells. If I'm the Chinese and I think about artillery shells, here's what I think. 
if I don't put my factory markings on the shelves and I ship them on some of these rail cars that go constantly between China and Russia, how are the Americans going to figure this out? How are they going to know that these are my shells? There is almost no way to tell an artillery shell and where it, first of all, they explode upon contact. So you're not going to, picking up the fragments of the shells aren't going to help you a damn bit. Um, secondly, you would have to get the casings. But if you're clever about this and you don't put Chinese markings on the casings, they could be from anywhere. And so I think that the area that I worry most about is this kind of covert assistance, where the Chinese think we could get away with this. This is not that hard to do. And companies in China, and believe me, I have followed them ever since they started arms sales in the early 80s, are very clever at this. They send military equipment all over the world covertly. We've caught them sometimes. We haven't caught them other times. They know how to do this. They know how to sterilize rifles and artillery shells and all of these kinds of things so that you can't tell the origin. They know what we look for when we're looking for the origin of equipment like this. So my biggest worry is that they will think they can covertly get some of this stuff into Russian hands. The step beyond that that is interesting is if this Der Spiegel report is right, and I guess Congressman McCall also said this yesterday, that China is thinking of drones to Russia. That's a very different thing. Very difficult to hide that these are Chinese drones. You can see already the way that the Ukrainians were able to figure out the Iranian drones and, and show evidence of it. I think it would be very, very difficult to hide the fact that these are Chinese drones. But China could sell them to third countries and claim that they had no idea that Iran was going to sell them on to the Russians, for example. Uh, there are a lot of ways that you can do this with some degree of plausible deniability. Although I think that once we get to a step like selling the drones, by the way, the drones would be incredibly effective for the Russians. They're very good drones, very sophisticated drone technology in China, uh, much more sophisticated than what the Iranians have provided to the Russians. So these could be battlefield game changers. And that's exactly why Russia wants them. And that's exactly why China is tempted and what we're dealing with now is a Chinese cost-benefit analysis. Um, how much is it worth to do this? Is this what we need to do? Is Putin in such a dire situation that we've got no choice but to do this? So many interesting dynamics at play here. I mean, one, we've got like the face dynamics of Putin having to be right. like, guys, I'm on my last legs here. Please help me out. Um, uh, another interesting yeah. thing, uh, just coming back to like the, the whole friendship dynamic earlier. Uh, another thing that I think is really mm -hmm. interesting is like on the one hand, Dennis, yeah, like you can you can scrub out the markings and put them on different trains and put them under bananas or, you know, whatever. But like right. what what's right. clear through this reporting over the past week is that, you know, this decision doesn't happen anywhere but from the top and 
you know, however much people want to, you know, diss uh, American intelligence capabilities in China, it's clear that, like, I don't, like, it's clear, I think, that that decision could not be made without America realizing it. So, yeah, even if you can't sort of, like, create a, like, really great sort of, like, Department of Justice indictment on, um, you know, whoever is managing the factory that's scrubbing off the Chinese characters, um, I, I don't think that we're in a world in which America wouldn't know pretty quickly that China has changed uh, its sort of policies towards arming Russia because like it would have to be large. Like you would only make this decision if it was large enough to potentially have a battlefield impact. And that is the sort of thing which I don't think you can end up really hiding for too long. No. Yeah, I I would agree. I, I, I would put it a little different way. And that is if I if I had to bet money and I'm not reading intelligence right now, I don't hold clearances right now. So I want to be clear on that. But um, if I had to bet money, our intelligence is probably coming more from inside Russia than it is inside China. And so I think that um, we we seem to have very good intelligence on the Russians. And what they're doing. And I would think that if the Chinese made the decision, we would probably see reflected first on the Russian side. And and so I, I, I agree totally with your point that this is not going to be hidden completely from sight. Uh, there's no way to do that. Uh, you know, but of course, what the Chinese are looking for is plausible deniability, right? You know, it would be really funny, Dennis, if... Um, mm. The Chinese actually had no interest in doing this at all. And it, they were just saying to the Russians, yeah, we're thinking about it to, like, not make them feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> that, could, that could be. And then that's what America's <laughs> picking up and freaking out on, even though she's like, no way. Like, I don't want to bet on this losing mm, course. Like, this right. is a terrible mm. idea. Uh, but they just don't yeah. want to tell it to mm. the Russians. Right. I hope that's the case. That made me feel a lot better. I, it would. You know, I want to add one element to this that nobody talks about. And I think that it's really important in Xi Jinping's calculation. And that is the Taiwan situation and Taiwan contingency. We all know that Xi Jinping is building up his capability in case he has to invade Taiwan or take military action, blockade, whatever against Taiwan. That's quite clear. And 2027 is the deadline he apparently has given the military, according to Bill Burns at the CIA. Now, if you're China and you're thinking about a war with Taiwan, who's going to be on your side in that war? Japanese aren't going to be there with you. South Koreans aren't going to be there with you. The Australians aren't going to be there with you. The South, Southeast Asians are going to hide in a hole somewhere, uh, not wanting any part of either side in that conflict. So who you got? North Korea, Iran? But you got Russia. And Russia has shown very clearly and has demonstrated it on many occasions that um, it's with China on this issue. And in fact, when Pelosi took her controversial trip to Taiwan last August, Lavrov said that this was, quote, a manifestation of the same course, unquote, the U.S. has taken on Ukraine. And so from the Chinese point of view, there's another big reason to stick with Brother Putin. And that is 
when that war comes, if it comes, let's hope it doesn't, uh, Russia will be very useful. It will be useful at the United Nations. It may be useful militarily. Remember that Chinese and Russian bomber aircraft now train together. Chinese and Russian bombers go through the East Sea all the time. In fact, they did one of their uh, joint exercises while Biden was in Tokyo for a quad summit last year. Uh, they're, they're not disguising the fact that their militaries are working together. So it's another factor. You know, one, one like theory of the case for Xi deciding to do this is he like already is convinced the Cold War has reached another level and he wants to get there faster than the U.S. does. Um, is that my framing? Frame that, um, if I can <laughs> give it a try, Yeah. Um, is that she has concluded that we are in a new Cold War, that this is the moment when the new Cold War starts, and that um, given that it's the new Cold War, then being willing to take whatever pressure the United States decides it has to take in terms of sanctions against China is worth it because you need to keep Russia viable. You need to keep Putin viable and you need to keep him viable because we are now involved in the great, um, shall we say, um, global conflict between the United States and maybe to put it in Biden's term, the democracies versus the autocracy, autocracies, that this has really now come to an ideological battle and it's no longer at a lower scale, but rather we are really into the new Cold War and China must take a lead. China must take a stand. Let's stay on the dark timeline for a second. So she believes that and ends up making a decision to send drones, artillery, you know, RPGs, whatever, um, to Russia. What do Biden and the Europeans do? How how does this change? You know, how irrevocably does this change the uh, dynamic and relationship between China and the rest of the world? I think. Um... With the United States, it is pretty devastating to what's left of the relationship. Biden has clearly indicated that he wants to build a floor under this relationship and doesn't want it to get to the level of conflict, doesn't want to get it from strategic competitors to strategic rivals. Um, this would be an indicator that China doesn't see that floor as necessary at this point, um, that there are, are bigger equities involved here than just playing nice with Washington, uh, that Washington has got to be backed off. And one of the ways of backing Washington off is to help Putin, if you will, win his war, whatever that means. And I'm not sure I know how to define a win in Ukraine, but. Uh, but help Putin certainly not lose his war, um, really would make it very tough for the United States, given the curtain, current attitudes in the U.S. Congress, uh, and to some degree the polling data on the American public attitudes, for 
the administration to find a way to put a floor under the problems in the relationship. It would be devastating. I think it would be devastating to the relationship with the Europeans. Uh, already, uh, it has been remarkable how much change there has been in attitudes in capitals such as Berlin uh, on China. It used to be that economics ruled. Uh, that isn't the case anymore. Uh, there are a lot of different voices in Berlin now on how to deal with China. And so I, it, it would be a tectonic plate shift if the Chinese begin to all-out support Putin and his war in the Ukraine. So what can we can we live in some hypotheticals for a second? What what falls out of that tectonic shift? Well, first of all, the Biden administration, NATO and others would have to decide what is the price that they're going to try to make China pay? Uh, do they, for example, do some of the things they did to Russia in terms of banking sanctions, uh, cutting them off from SWIFT? Uh, other kinds of uh, sanctions against individuals and companies. Uh, how far do they go in trying to make China pay? Now, the difficulty is when we did this to the Russians, it was fairly easy. While there were certain business equities in Russia of American companies, it's nothing like 3,500 Starbucks um, McDonald's all over the place, uh, the involvement of Walmart in the Chinese economy. There are very big American players with very big stakes. And I can tell you that those companies are starting to sweat right now because they certainly do not want the kind of pressures on them. I mean, look at Apple. If the United States government were to tell Apple that it has to somehow back off of manufacturing in China, uh, there's nowhere for Apple to go right now uh, that can replace those Foxconn factories. People talk about India, but India doesn't have the infrastructure yet for that kind of thing. Uh, they can do some things, but it would be in a huge effect on the American consumer. And so um, the the decisions that Washington Washington would have to make the decisions to put pressure on the Chinese, to make the Chinese pay a price. The question is, how high a price would we really be willing to put on the Chinese, given that the Chinese economy is so um, integrated with the American economy? After all, last year, uh, we had the highest year of trade between China and the United States ever. You know, another, another dynamic I thought of is it's like the floor falls but the ceiling also drops pretty mm. dramatically right. as well. Right. Um, right. And, you know, it's it, because the, the sort of already today, there's basically no room in the dialogue or discourse for ever saying, you know, for ever proposing anything remotely constructive right. with respect to China. Right. Um, we just had Balloon Gate. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, and, and after, you know, the balloon stuff, yes, it's bad, but there's a world in which you can kind of write it off as like, hey, look, this is just it's intelligence gathering countries gather intelligence. And like, yeah, it wasn't nice. They flew a balloon. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, arming, you know, 
a country that you have like sworn and protect, <laughs> sworn to defend, and are sending you know tens, hundreds of billions of dollars of, of material and, and, and intelligence to support is is a is a very different uh, sort of strike on the side of anyone who's considering um, uh, proposing more constructive. And there's and the and you know. And a lot of people have said this, but the, there's no residual trust between Washington and Beijing anymore. And the balloon uh, incident just underscored how little trust there was between the two sides. Uh, we couldn't even get Blinken to Beijing for what would have been, you would argue, useful meetings because uh, nobody wanted on the U.S. side politically uh, to take that kind of step. Uh, because of, of the nature of the relationship. So we, we are in a place where the channels of communication have shut down and the level of, uh, of really not uh, believing the other side or uh, believing China doesn't believe us on our one China policy anymore. Uh, we don't believe them on peaceful unification with Taiwan. Uh, you know, there are fundamental areas where... Uh, we just have lost completely the ability to come to any kind of common ground. All right. So we we talked dark timeline. Let's talk slightly less dark timeline. She as peacemaker. Mm. Uh, is is he going to swoop in and, and, and earn his Nobel Prize? What's the what's <laughs> what's going on here? I'm sure he'd like to earn a Nobel Prize. Um, you know, first of all. The way the Chinese rolled this out was interesting and instructive. It's, it, it, they don't even call it a peace proposal. They call it a position paper. So they rolled out without any Chinese leader actually uh, speaking publicly about it, uh, this 12-point plan. Now, the 12-point uh, position paper, I should say, uh, on political settlement really was timed very poorly um, because neither side is ready for serious talks at this point. Putin hasn't shown an interest in talks at all. And certainly Zelensky has not shown an interest in any kind of ceasefire or any kind of talks. So it was kind of a stunt on the first anniversary of the war rather than any kind of reflection on the battlefield conditions. And that lessens its utility. Uh, it does backhandedly uh, criticize Russia on the question of respect for sovereignty under the UN Charter. So that's something the Russians probably weren't happy to see. Uh, but it also backs Moscow in that it says that the legitimate security interests and concerns of all countries must be taken seriously and addressed. So China tries to have its cake and eat it too in this uh, position paper. And I think my own view is Zelensky reacted really cleverly and savvy way of reacting to it, which he said, great, good to see your proposal. Let's sit down and talk about it. Now, of course, Xi Jinping has not talked to Zelensky since the war started. And so for Z Zelensky kind of threw it right back at him. He kind of said, back at you. You put a proposal on the table. Great. So sit down with me. Let's have a video chat. 
you know, maybe you can come here to give, whatever. Um, <laughs> which I doubt. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Okay, that, okay. Can you imagine the world in which he goes to Kiev and like a bomb falls 20 feet away from him? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> Why not? Oh, that train ride isn't that bad, is it? The 10 hours. Um, I think, I think, and, you know, I don't want to be overly critical of the Biden administration on this, but I think the Biden administration response was too um, dismissive. It wasn't useful to just kind of backhand the Chinese and say, there's nothing here. There's nothing to see. Um, because the problem with that is you let the Chinese off the hook at that point. The Chinese can now say, well, we tried. We tried to be a, a, a peace negotiator. And what did you do? You, you rejected us. You don't really want peace. You want this war to continue indefinitely. And that's what the Chinese keep saying about the U.S. position. And so while I think the Chinese proposal, there's not a lot of there there to it, to be honest with you, I think we can more cleverly use it. I think we should follow Zelensky's lead on this. Let Zelensky take the lead in trying to talk to the Chinese about this. And, um, and, and in that way, you kind of hem the Chinese in a little bit. If you take the position Washington has taken at this point, then what's in it for China to, to continue to take a position of neutrality if you're, if you're just going to dismiss them at every turn? So I think there's some danger in the initial very quick reaction out of Washington. And I would hope that is I mean, modified. I would I would absolutely give she his Nobel if this war could end in a way that works out. Um, you know, I do. I <laughs> right. did like the line in there saying uh, that nuclear weapons should not be used and nuclear wars must not be fought. The threat or use of <laughs> right. nuclear weapons should be opposed. Um, the idea that that's like a statement in 2023 that you can applaud <laughs> is sort of mind blowing. Right. But right. hey, right. you know, give it to them. I mean, that, that, that's like a nice little, uh, hey, yeah. like chill oh, out Putin uh, oh. uh, line in there, which I think, right. you know, you're right. It's, it's something that the U.S. could say, good, I'm glad you don't want World War Three, like positive here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Right. I, yeah, I think there was a way to do that. You know, I would only add, um, and um, I think this shows where the Chinese true colors are on this issue. They haven't been willing to talk to Zelensky, but they had the first visit from the Iranian president in 20 years uh, in February. And then they have just announced that Lakashenko is going to Beijing and actually will be there tomorrow, which is the first visit to China since uh, 2016. I think this shows where China really is. Um, the fact that they don't even dare talk to Zelensky, but they're going to invite all of the pariah states uh, to, to come to Beijing and to have these discussions, that shows Chinese neutrality is not real. So, so staying on the sort of like assigning probabilities to our, um, you know, our, our, our central question of will China do it, of uh, really starting to send um, arms to Russia. I mean, I guess like the factors influencing this are how so 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 your argument is the central one is that um, the worst 
the worse Putin is doing and the likelier that he is that the, the likelier it is that a, that sort of failure on the battlefield leads to real domestic um uh, r- real chances of him not sort of being in power in, in two or three years. That's that's the the number one driver. Are there are there factors number two and three, um, or is that one sort of outshine everything else? I think that I think that is the big factor. Another factor which um, is very cynically Chinese, but I think is real, is that the more the United States is involved in a conflict in. Ukraine and in Europe and has to expend its energies and resources on the conflict there, uh, the better for China. Because if you look, you know, the United States has talked about pivoting to Asia, uh, more troop presence in Asia. In actual fact, we have not changed our force parks or very much at all in East Asia. And we are sending troops back to Europe. We are also using up our defense industrial capability to supply the Ukrainians. And it is clear that Taiwan is second in line. And so uh, there are billions of dollars of U.S. arms sales to Taiwan that are going uh, unfulfilled at this point because of Ukraine. And so is it in the interest of China for this war to continue? I would argue that it is uh, in some ways. because that preoccupies NATO, it preoccupies the United States, and keeps some of the pressure off the Chinese. Помнишь те времена, когда мы шли пару за пару с рядом подпирая борта, хоть и разные были до шути, напили всегда рядом и до дна. Еще время думаться есть, пока сверху решают дела. Но брат ли ты мне залетая в спину из царапов до крови? По частушке скобеевой прочих уродов басни бредовые. Мы-то вывезем даже удары в спину. В этом не сомневайся. Груз двухсотый джавелин байрактар. Ну что, брат, решайся. Притрусы снегом с неба, кровь и смыя в весне На память лише только плач и слезы зловесны Россия иде допомогти, залишает дырки Мы все закарбували себе на веки Жовто-блакитным небом прикрыта моя земля Паляниці с медом, памятник замість Кремля Киборгам с наметом, посланням до корабля Русский корабль, иди нахуй, бо пойдете до дна Жовто-блакитным небом Прикрита моя земля, паляниці з медом, пам'ятник замість Кремля, кіборгам з наметом, посланням до корабля, русський корабель, іди нахуй, бо підете до дна. Як тобі на холодному полі, де 
лиш палають тополі У вас однакові долі смерть або нити в полоні Мотори глохнуть в колонії, а вийдете проти волі Прямо на смерті на полі, де лиш палають тополі Вам нашкребемо на тілі, символи всім зрозумілі Бачиш, твій брати не в силі, іти назад до Росії І доки мати на кухні, десь там поближче к Ростову Втирає очі на пухлі, сина ховаємо знову Жовто-блакитний слід від джевеліни Де б ви, суки, не були На серці навіть не болить І наше небо нам світить Наша воля нам велить За Україну хоронить Доки Дніпро шумить Хай жовто-блакитним небом Прикрита моя земля Паляниці з медом Пам'ятник замість Кремля Кіборгам з наметом Посланням до корабля Русський корабль іде нахуй Бо підете до дна Жовто-блакитним Земля, паляниці з медом, пам'ятник замість Кремля, кіборгам з наметом, посланням до корабля, русський корабель іде нахуй, бо підете до дна.